Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. And now if you'll please join me in the words for lighting the chalice, they're printed in your order of service and also projected. We light this chalice. Now please take a deep breath. Let yourself come into this space. Let yourself come into this time. Let yourself come into the embrace of this community. Whatever you bring this morning, breathe deeply. Let yourself slow down. Let yourself just be. Breathe and listen. A colleague recently pointed me toward a short writing by the Reverend Jack Mendelssohn, who was a longtime Unitarian Universalist minister and author of, among many other things, the work Being Liberal in an Illiberal Age. It's worth a read. Um, But this piece this morning is what Jack had to say about Unitarian Universalist ministers. He wrote, A Unitarian Universalist minister is a person never completely satisfied or satisfiable, never completely adjusted or adjustable. A person who walks in two worlds, one of things as they are, the other of things as they ought to be, and loves them both. Ministers are persons with pincushion and elastic hearts, who sit with the happy and the sad in a chaotic pattern of laugh, cry, laugh, cry, and know deep down that the first time their laughter is false or their tears are make-believe, Their days as a real minister are over. Ministers are people with dreams they can never wholly share, partly because they have some doubts about them, and partly because they are unable to explain adequately what it is they think they see and understand. A minister is a person who continually runs out of time, out of wisdom, out of courage, and out of money, a person whose tasks involve great responsibility and little power, who must learn to accept people where they are and go from there, a person who must never try to exercise influence that has not been earned. The minister who is worthy knows all this 
and is still thankful every day of life for the privilege of being a minister. The future of the liberal church is almost totally dependent on these two factors. Great congregations, whether large or small, and effective, dedicated ministers. The strangest feature of their relationship is that they create one another. And I loved that last line, that they create one another, that little twist. It recognizes that effective and dedicated ministers are made by great congregations, and vice versa. The relationship between minister and congregation, between minister and individual congregants, is a hard one to define, a hard one to explain to others. But what is most certainly real is that it is through the relationship of minister and congregation that both entities become better. It is through board meetings, Sunday services, pastoral care, committee meetings, and so much more that you and I, together, are able to do more and be better. We create one another. Liberal religion and the thriving of a congregation like this is all about relationship, because congregational life is, at its core, about community building. It is a pleasure to be in relationship with you and to build community with you. This morning, I come with gratitude for the mutuality through which we both are created. This morning, I come with gratitude for all that this place is, all that it does, all that it offers to the world. Every Sunday that we gather, we take time in our service to sit in the quiet, to allow each other a place for reflection, for prayer, for contemplating the stuff of our lives. So at this point, I invite you to find as comfortable a way to be in your chair as you can. You can roll your shoulders back. There you go. Let your hands relax. Unclench your jaw. And take a deep breath in. Make it nice and slow. Breathe deep down into your belly. And then slowly breathe out. This morning, we arrive grateful for the comfort of community. It is here among people who care, who listen, who offer a helping hand, that we learn ever more deeply the value of seeing one another and being seen, of knowing each other and being known. of embracing and being embraced, of loving and being loved. Here we practice and we remember just how important it is to have a place to be ourselves, a place to let others bring their wholeness. As we sit in silence, I invite you to offer gratitude for this and other communities that help sustain your life.
Take a slow, deep breath. Sometimes in the evening, my dad watches TV and then wants to show me something. So earlier this week, he was watching a show called Brain Games. I don't know if anyone has seen this. As far as I can tell from the portion I watched, the show explores different social and psychological questions. This particular episode was all about how you find a partner in life. So in one of the games, they had 12 people uh, put cards on their foreheads, and the cards were numbered from one to six, right? So there were two of each card, and each person had no idea what their own card said, but for a minute, they were supposed to wander around with the other 11 people and try to pair up in a way that maximized their number, And apparently, in such a game, inevitably the fours to sixes tend to pair together, and the one to threes tend to pair together. There was a whole explanation that I won't bore you with at the moment, but it was interesting to watch. And in addition to the games, they have little quizzes. And before commercial break, one of these quizzes happened. The question was asked, which of these 12 words, and then it flashed up 12 words, is the best indicator of a relationship's longevity and success? Among the 12 words were yes, no, maybe, commitment, laughter, and some others. And at first I thought, oh, it's definitely going to be yes, because a willingness to compromise and to try is so important. And then I thought, no, it's going to be no, because (laughs) boundaries and individuality are really important. But then I saw that one of the words was we. And that was my guess. And you can ask my dad. I'm not lying. I said, oh, it's going to be we. And after the commercial break, the host says, and I'm paraphrasing, research has showed that among these words, we is the most important predictor of relationship success. I perform weddings often enough that I think that's why I guessed we. A couple that understands that, yes, they have independent lives and interests and work and friends and family, but who looks at the world with a we orientation who thinks about the future in terms of what we will do rather than what I will do, those are really important indicators of the health of a partnership. The mission of this congregation, as adopted on May 17, 2009, is growing in mind and spirit, we act together as a beacon for justice and love, transforming self and world. When I was first looking at this congregation during search over three years ago, I wondered about this mission. Many of our Unitarian Universalist congregations include, alongside personal growth and working for justice, connecting to each other in community as part of the mission. I wondered three years ago about that seemingly missing piece in our mission as articulated here, because it doesn't actually explicitly talk about how we will take care of each other, that we're going to work to connect to each other, to embrace and love each other. It doesn't actively stress community in that way or the creation of relationships. I wondered what that might mean about this place. And sometimes I still wonder whether or not we are indeed missing something in that mission statement. But I wonder that if we would be well served to include some language about community building, I wonder that not because it is lacking here, but because it is so clearly a part of what we do here. So clearly there is a we at work here. 
in small ways and in large ways. And we as in the mission, I have to say, we will act as a beacon of love and justice. But that's what I thought about as I watched this Brain Games quiz. I thought about the power of that little word, we, and how it is so active here. So this morning I want to share with you some of the ways that I see we at work here at USR. So we meaning that indicator of a commitment to each other that evinces a deep desire to be together in community in a way that means giving of ourselves and creating and deepening our relationships. So I see the we in our small groups, like our covenant groups or our women's and men's groups, that rally around each other in times of challenge and support each other in good times. I see the we in the way you have stepped up for coffee hour when we determined that paying for our coffee didn't make sense because you know that hospitality on Sunday morning is actually vital to creating a sense of welcome and community for old-timers and newcomers alike. I see the we in the yeses we received as we asked folks to become facilitators in our new circle structure because roles of leadership allow individuals to make new relationships and to help others build them. I see the we in your general openness to trying out that new system of circles, even though we know there'll be bumps and bruises, because you understand that in order to remain welcoming and accessible and nimble in a changing world, we need to be ready to respond with enthusiasm and possibility to new ideas and new people. I see the we in so many times that you have agreed to my special requests, like to build a labyrinth on our floor or to experiment in our Sunday services, to participate in so many of the different ways that I ask you to, because you understand that trying new things together on Sundays and talking to each other as we explore what matters most allows us to go deeper, to get more and more vulnerable and real in healthy and meaningful ways. I see the we in the chip-in mentality that happens every day among you and the staff, helping to move tables and chairs, stepping up to jobs small and large because you know that none of us should have to do this stuff alone and that helping each other builds strength. And I see the we in things that sometimes I suspect many of you don't because there are a lot of individuals here who do stuff behind the scenes that you wouldn't even realize. There's someone who takes home chairs to fix them, to make sure that they are safe for you all to sit in. (laughs) There's someone who takes that clock down and makes sure the time is right so that I stay in time on Sunday mornings. It's helpful to me and all of us. There's someone who works tirelessly to maintain the kitchen and ensure that we're all complying with recycling and now with our own composting. I know that among you are people who have asked others who had nowhere to go on holidays to come and be with their families. There are so many ways that I see the we in what we do, but there are probably many other ways that I don't see it. Because I see the structural things or the individual things I know about. I see the caring committee and the pastoral associates. I see the committee on shared ministry. But there are so many quieter ways that you all build we every day. So I'm actually going to ask you this morning, we're going to build some we right now, I'm going to ask you this morning to turn to the person next to you and share one way that you see community at work here, one way that you see us building we, okay? Go ahead. (laughs) 
They just laugh. They just laugh when it starts. They like turn and they give up. delight me every time when we do that because you turn to each other and it just like erupts into this whole and I love it. Do one or two of you want to say what you shared with your partner? Is anybody willing to? Yeah, Sandra. Thanks, Sandra. Other ways you see the we at work? Yes. As you may have guessed, today is the Pledge Drive Sermon. Uh, as was explained earlier, today begins the three-week period during which we take pledges that will help determine our budget for next year. And I was thinking about this service that would begin the pledge time, and I thought about lots of things I could do. I knew I'd have to tell you the details. Get ready. Here they are. We'll be handing out pledge cards after service. This year, it's a very brief annual campaign of just three weeks. We have an amazing team that's been running it, and our new uh, software system, Realm, is going to make it that much easier. There you go. That's it. But imparting that, <laughs> imparting that info didn't actually solve how to approach the pledge drive sermon. Over the years, I have used various techniques, and I know what my colleagues do. Sometimes we ask congregations to think about how much they care about their congregation, or we ask congregants to think about how much they pay for cable each month, or if you're just streaming, your streaming services. Sometimes we ask you to think about how much you spend on lattes each week, or we ask you if what you pledge feels like a real reflection of your investment in this place, not only for yourselves right now, but for future generations. These are all useful questions and helpful frames. But this year, I just kept coming back to this question of community building. 
We live in a time in which community building and kindness and altruism are less prized than we might wish. But there is hope. I read a piece just last week about research being done in the University of Washington's Institute for Learning and Brain Sciences. There, researchers are investigating what inclination babies and toddlers have toward altruism. And they have found that 19-month-old babies will give their food away to someone they perceive to be hungry, even if the babies themselves are hungry. So the researchers took this line of study because, as the lead author, Rodolfo Cortez Barragan, says, we think altruism is important to study because it is one of the most distinctive aspects of being human. It's an important part of the moral fabric of society. We adults help each other when we see one another in need, and we do this even if there is a cost to the self. So we wanted to test the roots of this in infants. So in the study, the researchers dropped food sort of over the side of something, and the babies were down below. And in one group, the researchers then tried to reach for the food, indicating that they wanted it back or they needed it back. In the other group, they simply let it drop and gave no indication that they had any desire for that food to come back to them. In the group where the adults reached for the food, 58% of the 19-month-olds got the food and handed it back to the grown-up. In the group where the researchers didn't indicate a need, only 4% of the babies recovered the food and gave it back to the person who dropped it. So the babies seemed able to perceive the desire or the need of the researcher and seemed to want to meet that need if they could. They wanted to help. The researchers then conducted the experiment again with hungry babies. <laughs> so they did the same thing, but right before mealtime. The numbers dropped. Only 37% of the babies offered the food back to the reaching researchers, and none of the babies helped if the researchers didn't indicate any desire. So when hungry, the babies were more likely to claim the dropped food for themselves, but still, 37% of them gave the food back, even when they were hungry. It's an interesting study, especially um, because of some of the other aspects they factored for, like the impact of child-rearing practices, the impact of um, siblinghood or a lack of siblinghood, whether or not the babies got better if the behavior was repeated over time or if it changed over time. Ultimately, the hope of the researchers is, according to Berrigan, that lead on the study, to improve society. He says, if we can discover how to promote altruism in our kids, this would move us toward a more caring society. I love the thought that native to at least a small majority of babies is the impulse to help. And that native to a certain percentage, albeit a smaller one, is the impulse to help even if it goes against self-interest. That gives me hope. Because I think a lot about the state of the world, and I know you do too. I think about the ways that individualism and greed and fear can control how we behave with each other. I think a lot about how self-interest seems to drive politics. The distribution of wealth and safety and health and power in this country and around the world doesn't reflect that inherent potential in that impulse to give away the fallen fruit even when we're hungry. But that impulse to sharing and abundance and courage and selflessness is very real, and I see it here. Just yesterday, a bunch of folks got down on their knees to help me peel up the labyrinth so that I didn't have to do it alone. We cultivate these virtues here, 
Here we commit to stretching our own minds and spirits toward growth. Here we commit to acting as a beacon for love and justice. Here we commit to transforming ourselves and the world. Our mission truly is a worthy one. In a world that challenges our best visions of what can be, our mission calls us to rise to the occasion with a countercultural push toward community and kindness, loving welcome and justice. When we fulfill that worthy mission, we create here a community that makes others feel safe and loved and free to fulfill the central mission of being human, becoming themselves so that they can give of themselves to a broken and hurting world that needs them. Often at the offering, I will say that the organization we share the plate with saves lives. Sometimes, literally by providing food or shelter or medical care. Sometimes by providing opportunities or mental health assistance or witness or advocacy that can radically change someone's self-view or prospects. I think we sometimes forget that this place can save lives too. The Unitarian Society of Ridgewood can save lives. We don't speak like this often in Unitarian Universalism. But I really believe this is true. When someone walks through those doors and finds a community and love of love and care, it can be life-changing and indeed sometimes life-saving. We forget, or it sounds too hyperbolic, but it's true because there are those among us and outside of our walls who have known meanness and violence at the hands of another tradition. There are those who have been exiled by families or religions because of who they are and their hopes for their future. Finding a community of depth and love that embraces them can save a life. Generations before us made sure that these doors would stay open, literally and metaphorically, pushing the bounds of welcome every day. Generations have ensured that USR could create, year after year, a community that is ever more loving and embracing, ever more committed to justice, ever more determined to change the world. It's our turn to shepherd in this way, to leave a legacy for the future. It's our turn, and I see all the ways that you prepare this place for the future. I see all that you do, and I am grateful for it. And I know you stretch deep every year to make your pledges, and I'm grateful for that as well. We're asking you to do so again, and we are asking, aware that the turmoil in the world right now might make it that much harder this time around. But generations have fought and given and leaned into abundance. Generations have overcome fear and scarcity thinking and an ethos of national isolation and greed in order to build this community of love. Generations of people have been here creating a church that matters and creating it over the long haul. I want to close today's sermon with words from Rudy Nemser. This is a piece called Long Haul People that I have read to the board before. You find them in churches when you're lucky. Other places too, though I mostly know only ecclesiastical varieties. Long Haul People, upon whose shoulders and pocketbooks and casseroles and daytime, nighttime hours, a church is built and maintained after the brass is tarnished and cushions need restitching. They pay their pledges full and on time, even when the music's modern, support each canvas, <laughs> support each canvas, though the sermons aren't always short, mow lawns and come to suppers, teach Sunday school when there's no one else and they'll miss the service. 
asked what they think of the minister or plans for the kitchen renovation or the choral anthem or the Christmas pageant or the color of the bathroom paint, they'll reply, individuals and fashions arrive and pass. The church, their church, will be here, steady and hale for a long, long time. It will. For long-haul people bless a church with a very special blessing. I see you. I see you long-haul people. You bless this place with a very special blessing, just as you bless the world with a very special blessing. Thank you for the gifts you offer here in our shared home and out in our shared world. They are so deeply needed. May you continue to help turn the tide toward love and justice, courage and hope. And may this community continue to grow and transform and save lives. So may it be. Please remain standing and we'll extinguish our chalice with the words. We extinguish this flame. Burn bright in our hearts until we are together again. May we be a beacon for love and justice, finding fulfillment and rising to the promise of our future. Go in peace. <laughs>